it's such a complicated cycle and it's not something of like, oh, why didn't you just leave? That just is never the right answer. It's never the victim's fault for being abused. It's the abuser's fault for choosing to abuse. So, you know, just get that out of your, out of your head. Leaders make tough choices all the time. And these days, <laughs> the choices feel like they are fire hosing us without pause. While the stakes feel so high, with every choice before us. But not all leaders take ownership of their choices. Now, ownership over decisions involves deep accountability, making amends, and a commitment to heal the echoes of trauma, which makes taking ownership hard, even brutal at times. So when leaders take ownership of their decisions, they stand out from the sea of people who are quick to deflect, to hide, to blame. How leaders take ownership of their tough choices reflects their ability to lead and defines the impact they will make on their own well-being and on those they're leading. Leaders who own their choices and take ownership of their decisions are the leaders we need to follow. In fact, these are the leaders we need right now. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Leaders make decisions all the time. You get this. You get this deeply. I suspect you have a hard choice that you're rumbling with right now. Maybe it's wondering if you let your underperforming team member go, or do you continue to work on performance improvement? <laughs> or maybe you have a tough conversation on the horizon with a family member about Thanksgiving Day traditions and how you're going to handle them in the age of COVID-19 and political vitriol. Or like our family, do you rumble with sending your kids back to school or continue to do the work life schooling from home mosh pit dance. The choices feel endless and the stakes are high. You know, this is a part of the gig of leading and caring about the choices and impact you make yet. The choices we make on a daily basis, if we're not careful are not just choices, but are often protective patterns that come from the echoes of trauma we've experienced in our life. Now, when I'm talking about echoes of trauma, I'm talking about the residual impact from betrayals and neglect, abuse, failure, rejection, grief, shame, you know what I'm talking about. So, so even when you have invested in healing and recovery and experienced success in overcoming, <laughs> there are often still echoes of trauma to pay attention to how they show up in your choices, the choices that you make in your life and in your leadership. You see, these protective patterns often become default in your efforts to stay safe, keep yourself comfortable, and protect your belonging to the communities and aspects of culture that matter. Now, because you do not deflect or blame, you feel the weight and the responsibility of all that is on your plate right now. Taking ownership of our decisions is when we take a hard look at these patterns. We're acknowledging those patterns and we're making choices with those patterns in mind instead of letting those patterns dictate our choices to us. And one of the toughest and most important choices for a leader is to look within and do the deep work to heal the echoes of trauma to lighten the load of their burdens so they can lead themselves and others better. Right now, we're watching in real time the dangers of leaders who are not in touch with their humanity and lead with pain, bullying, and fear. We are breathing in so much toxicity right now, and it's taking a toll on all of us. Since sheltering in began last spring, and the dial has turned up on the intensity of this political season, I am struck by those leaders who have and are doing the work to heal the echoes of their trauma while navigating everything. I'm noticing fatigue for sure. 
but I'm seeing something else. I'm seeing a fire that is focused on their commitment to owning their stories. As a result, they are laser focused on the issues, the people, and the work that matters most to them, along with focusing on their own self-care and growth. The resilience and tenderness I am seeing in these leaders is inspiring me. They claim their humanity in all aspects of their story while not losing focus on their values or shrinking from the culture of critics we're living in. They navigate these echoes imperfectly, but with an ownership and confidence grounded in their inerrant worthiness and value, less encumbered by seeking value and safety externally. Now, I want to note the nuanced echoes of trauma from domestic and intimate partner violence, which are particularly insidious, and how they creep into day-to-day decisions in ways that are often hard to detect, but show up in ways that impact confidence and clarity. Domestic violence is on the rise because of COVID-19. Many are at home with those who are perpetrating physical, emotional, sexual, psychological abuse against them, and it's essential we recognize the signs and save lives. Abuse is abuse, no matter how mild or extreme, and it often escalates, so don't minimize threats or attacks or controlling behaviors. Tactics through coercive control, like controlling finances, social interaction, isolating, threatening attacks on reputation, and using children and pets to inflict pain are too often minimized and explained away, which is part of the dark web of abuse. So we have a choice. We have a decision to make to pay attention that this month, October, is National Domestic and Intimate Partner Abuse Awareness Month. And the conversation with my guest today brings important awareness to this type of often misunderstood violence. Former Congresswoman Katie Hill is a powerhouse in work and life and is also a survivor of domestic violence. She wasn't yet 30 when she embarked on her run for Congress. And by 31, She had become not only a member of Congress, but one of the youngest women to ever serve in the House of Representatives and also a member of congressional leadership, which is a big freaking deal, especially for a freshman uh, congresswoman. Former Congresswoman Hill resigned from her position less than a year after entering Congress following political sabotage by her abusive ex-husband in a scandal that began a national conversation around questions and choices around bisexuality, domestic abuse, cyber exploitation, workplace power dynamics, and what happens when regular people who live regular lives run for public office. Former Congresswoman Hill is the author of She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality, and the founder of Her Time, a political action committee supporting women in politics who are shaping their communities and their country for the better. Pay attention to where Katie drew her courage from as she made difficult decisions regarding her career and own personal healing. Note the phrase that Katie thinks, and I 100% agree with, that we need to eliminate from our worldview. And listen for the choices she continues to make as she moves forward personally and professionally this episode, we'll be discussing domestic violence and suicidal ideation. Please, please take care as you listen and please pause if you need to. If you or someone you know is struggling with domestic violence or thoughts of suicide, please contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at www.thehotline.org or call 800-799-7233 or contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. Now, I am so honored to welcome former Congresswoman Katie Hill to the Unburdened Leader podcast. I am so thrilled and honored to welcome Katie Hill to the podcast today. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. I was so stoked when you agreed to be on the podcast because there is so much 
about, gosh, there's so much I'm excited to talk to you about. So I, okay. I'm going to jump right in and go right back to that big day. Almost a year ago, this month, that you resigned from Congress and you gave your last speech, you cast your last vote, which was to impeach President Trump. And I found myself <laughs> standing up alone in my living room, watching your speech and, and feeling such a sense of awe of the clarity with which you not only named the double standards behind your decision to resign, but I just really appreciate the humility and, and the accountability, the ownership um, about hurting and disappointing the many that were impacted by your resignation and, and all that led up to it. Can, can you paint a picture for us of that day? Yeah. Um, so I actually, that day was the culmination of, uh, of, I guess it had probably been about a week, maybe a little bit longer at that point, um, since the photos had been released. And since I had kind of been faced with this decision of what do I do now? Um, so it had been a, a totally, you know, draining experience in terms of, you know, not knowing when it was going to end, knowing that, you know, this was being carried out by, my ex who had been abusive for so long. Um, and that this was now being done in conjunction with my political enemies and with the right wing media. Um, but also that at the same time I did have, you know, my own responsibility to take for it. Right. And I knew that. Um, and so, you know, what, what did I do with all of that? And I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I'm a, I'm a new politician. I'm not somebody who's been in office for a long time. Um, and so you kind of have this just, this culmination of everything about uh, when finally I decided to resign, all of that led to the moment when I, I knew I felt that I needed to be strong to give that speech. I felt like I needed to, you know, really bring together all of my courage and deliver something with the, you know, with courage and, and strength and, um, and say what I felt like I needed to say, because I knew that um, that was going to be the, the best chance for me to uh, to sort of explain myself for stepping away, but also to say that, you know, this doesn't mean I'm going to go away. And this doesn't mean that I, you know, I'm admitting, I guess, defeat, if that makes sense, admitting, um, admitting that, you know, what they did is, is going to ruin me. So yeah, that was, I mean, it was, a, it was just so focused on like, I need to get through this, I need to get through the speech, I need to keep it together. And, um, and then afterwards, it, it felt like, a, you know, big weight was off my shoulders. But it was it was still the beginning in so many ways. Where did you draw your courage and clarity as you wrote that speech and also delivered it? Um, well, my my family certainly was a big part of that. My mom was um, huge in terms of giving me basically permission to do what was right for me um, and to be a human, right? Like, because you know, I, I was I was just talking about somebody with some talking about this with somebody last night about how my my mom is the only person in the world who truly in all of this did not care about anything except for what was in the best interest of me as her daughter. So it was, and I, it's just such a, a mom thing, right? Where it was, it wasn't about like, who are you responsible to or who, you know, who's going to be upset if you do this or who's going to be upset if you don't do this. It was what, what do you need to do? And, um, and I guess she finally was the one who, who kind of gave that to me. And, and, um, and I, I held on to that as I was really thinking about what was, you know, what, why was it important for me to, to not just walk away, but to say something as I walked away? Um, and, and, you know, how did I make it memorable? Yeah. You wrote about that in your book and that, that stood out to me when your mom offered kind of a shifting perspective of you resigning is not as quitting, but yeah. really moving to another fight. That that just really sat with me. And so how specifically, tell us a little bit more how that reframe gave you clarity on your next steps. Yeah, it, I guess it was, it, you know, it was, it was this overwhelming sense during everything happening. Like when everything hit the fan that there was, that there was only, you know, at that point I felt like there was only one path, one path or two, two, two options, right. Is either you, you keep pushing forward or, or you give up, you quit. And it's basically like, win or lose, right? Keep going or you're tapping out. But when she was, when she really set me down and I say sat me down, but she was over the phone, but, um, but said, you know, that's not it. It's not losing. It's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean that you have to stop fighting for what you cared about, but 
it means that you know what the right thing is for you to do if you if you decide to step down. The right thing for you is to do and what's going to be the best thing for you. And um and so I think that that was a that was a you know it, it really helped me to kind of wrap my mind around like I know you know I am going to do something else with this. I am still only thirty two years old and um I'm I have a future left that's not going to be defined by what this this past you know <laughs> several years has been and um and you know she helped me believe in myself in that in that respect but also believe that you know I can I can create my own way of uh making a difference if it's not the original path that I thought I think that's such a a powerful lesson right for all of us when we're we sometimes feel like redirection is failure doesn't mean that the end game changes it's Mm -hmm. just the path and that that's such an important lesson it's still hard for me I get stubborn when I focus on something you know I want to touch base on the impact that the double standards that you you really detailed in your resignation speech. And and I'm curious about which one of those or which of those have been the most difficult for you to address. But before I do that, I, I do want to dial back a little bit because there may be a few people, <laughs> there may be a few people listening that are like, what is she talking about? Why did she resign? What's what, what, what happened? And I want to hear it in your words and how you want to talk about it um, just for some context. And then I want to jump in more to the double standards. Sure. So uh, the I guess the shortest I don't even know if it's the shortest way, <laughs> but um, the the way I would describe it is that I was I was elected as uh, in 2018 as a one of the youngest women ever elected to Congress. I flipped a um, a district that had been held by a Republican for decades. Um, I won in a you know this conservative area by running as an openly queer woman, uh, young woman, and I was. Um, you know, I, I ultimately was elected by my freshman class to serve in leadership. I was a, I was the vice chair of the oversight committee. I was, um, you know, a pretty prominent freshman and I was, uh, considered one of the rising stars, I guess, of the, of the democratic party. And, um, you know, was really successful in my, in my congressional career. I was a good fundraiser, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but by, so, so all of this was going on externally. But um, even before I had won the campaign, I had uh, I had tried to leave my husband. And at that point, he he told me that if I left, he would ruin me. And so I stayed. But about six months into to being in Congress, I decided I couldn't take it anymore. Um, and I needed to leave. So I did. And uh, that was that it was at that point. I think it was probably it was a, it was a few months later. It was probably um once he realized that I definitely wasn't coming back this time, that he decided to follow through on that and um, released my naked photos or not, not my naked photos, naked photos he had taken of me without my consent. Um, but that also showed that I'd had a relationship with a woman who had worked on my campaign. And so, you know, I'm not a, a perfect, I guess, uh, I don't know, victim in the sense that I, I, you know, had poor judgment too. And I, I did have a relationship that I shouldn't have had with somebody who worked for me. Um, and that kind of that, I guess, if it were just about naked pictures, then I I wouldn't have resigned. But it was it was more complicated than that. And um, and I I by resigning, tried to take full responsibility for, you know, my part in it, but recognize that there's still, you know, that, that I still have work that I can do and can contribute to trying to fight for equality. And you you named your accountability and your integrity is and ownership of that is why you step back. But you also addressed in your resignation speech that tension that there are many others men um, who have done so much more insidious and pervasive and we could go on and on other things mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we talk I want to hear you talk about the double standards um, and what have been the most difficult for you to address even as you're rising from all of this yeah well so the double standards are are really interesting to try and point out, right? Like I can't, I can't say with certainty that if I were a man that it had been, it had been in the exact same situation that in today's era with me too and everything like that, I can't say what would have happened. But what I can say is that we've seen time after time after time where powerful men, um, very frequently conservative men are simply not held to any kind of account for, uh, for whatever their indiscretion might be, whether it's, you know, engaging in, in, 
legitimate sexual abuse and assault or um or poor judgment uh, or you know uh, um it just inappropriate relationships or anything like that so um i think what i think where we saw the starkest kind of contrast or the starkest uh um I don't know, uh, application of these double standards is on the, the penance that is asked for, or the apology or the, or the, um, you know, the remediation, I guess, that is expected from a woman in this case. And I don't, you know, even during my, I've talked about this with my editor because she got really upset about this when one of the reviews of my book came back and it said, you know, the book is fine and everything, but Katie, you know, doesn't apologize enough. And it's like, how, how many times can you apologize? Like I, I resigned, I started an organization at PAC to, um, you know, to, to, to help more women get elected. I am no longer in any position of power. Um, certainly not one of uh, an elected office. I don't have staff anymore. Like I, I don't know what else I could do to apologize more. Um, and, and so I, yeah, so some people I think, and for me, it's just, you know, I'm just kind of used to it at this point, but for some people, I think it's really, really hard to say like, okay, what do you want from her? And why are we not asking those same things from a guy? If a guy you get any kind of apology from, then it's like oh, big victory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause most of the time they won't even admit that they've done anything. So, um, I don't know. I mean, that's, that is something that I still struggle with is like, I'd love to know what the, you know, what the marker is of like, what's what's the, what's the amount of contrition or, um, you know, what, what do you need to do to, to sort of, I'm not saying erase it or anything, right. I'm not saying, you know, that that part goes away, but to like have an acknowledgement of like, you're trying to kind of pick up the pieces and, um, and make things better for people who you might have hurt. Yeah. And, and, oh gosh, this is, I'm just noticing my seeing me seeing a little red right now because you know it, it is just this victim blaming and as as trauma-informed psychotherapist and, and and leadership coach you know the expectation for someone who's been perpetrated and you were married for or in the relationship for 15 years mm-hmm. and you're third 32 now and the relationship mm-hmm. ended a little over a year ago yeah so i'm third i just turned 33 in august and okay. happy um, birthday Thank you. And it ended, uh, I left in June of uh, 19. Okay. So yeah, so we're coming up a year. So again, almost half your life, let's just say mm-hmm. developmentally, just so much I know that goes into identity. And then the, the, the conflation of how you engage in relationships and what's okay and not okay. And all of those things, gaslight, the gaslighting of, of partner violence and all of that. And then we breathe in the expectation that if a woman is hurt like that, then what do we do to deserve it or perpetuate it? And I think that is so embedded that it's like, it, it isn't about the apology because I saw This is what, what I wanted to interview because I saw you take ownership of your whole story. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. That's different. You yeah. took ownership of the whole complex nuanced story. And I loved how you even identified with the era of me too saying, and right now there's no room for gray. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is part of my ownership story. And you were doing this for your integrity. And I think that is such an important example. Fair? No, not at all. And consistent? No. But I, I just want to say, you know, no more apologies. No more yeah. apologies. Moving yeah. forward, right? I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm done. I'm speaking that to myself. Like, no more apologies. <laughs> so, well, I so appreciate you, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because even even just recently like my account was my twitter account my old government twitter account was hacked but you know i i had this situation with people claiming that they were my former staff um who posted on my previous government official account and you know it was the same thing if they didn't say anything new about abuse or anything like that they didn't, there was no new claims of abuse or anything but it was like we're we're you know short story is that we're upset that Katie has not been held accountable by anybody but herself. That was the quote that really kind of stuck with me that she wasn't held accountable by anyone but herself. And I'm Mm. like, what is, what does that mean exactly? (laughs) And and what does that look like? You know what I mean? Does, so I don't know. I find it this kind of this thing that I'm just constantly sort of wondering about is like, what is it, you know, what does it take? What does it mean to take responsibility for it? And how do you end up ultimately doing that? And knowing you're not, going to make everybody ever happy. But, um, I just, I just wonder what, you know, my mom, I keep talking about her. 
but like this morning she works night shift. She's a nurse. And, um, and so, you know, her, my younger brother died in January after all of this. So mm-hmm. it's been a hell of a year. And my, but my mom as fierce as she is. He, he, she had brain surgery. My brother died and she was back to work as a nurse in a trauma center, um, in, in the middle of COVID like six months later. So, um, she's just strong as hell, but she called me and she's like, is it ever going to stop? Like, is it, if you're, you know, if, if you ever announce something happy or if you ever, you know, have something to celebrate, like, are people always going to, you know, try to take that from you or to, 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 you know, ruin, <laughs> ruin it basically. And I'm like, I mean, I don't know that it's like this forever, but I certainly, cause, because I announced the movie deal yesterday. So basically that the book, she will rise got, uh, um, it has, we got the movie rights done. So, um, and Elizabeth Moss is going to be playing me and I'm, I'm going to be producing it and I'm excited about it. But the whole point with the movie is that like, it's, we know there's a lot of nuance here. It's, it's a, it's a tough thing to try and cover. And I'm really proud that they're willing to take that on, um, with me. But anyway, so the, the thing that spurred that reaction from whether it was somebody who worked for me previously and is upset, um, or, or whoever else that, you know, they're, they were pissed that I had something, I guess, good <laughs> happen. That's what set it off. Right. And so good, good happened to me. And so I don't know, you know, I didn't really know what to, what to say to my mom about that either, because it's like heartbreaking for her to see it over and over and over again, that her, thank you, that her um, daughter, you know, and the whole family has to kind of deal with that every time. So this kind of violence and it impacts families and, you know, yours, happened on an international scale and so it's it's you know you reclaiming it and everyone's going to think they have a say yeah and it's you know i I was so stoked i mean elizabeth moss like the person (laughs) the person taking down gilead playing you i'm down i'm down Um, (laughs) i I bet you did but i I do want to talk about just being a survivor of domestic violence and, and cyber exploitation and you're you so wisely just made a distinction between revenge porn and cyber exploitation. Before I go into more about your story, can you can you talk about why you're really advocating that the media cover and anyone who writes about this uses cyber exploitation versus revenge porn? This is so important. Yeah, it's it's really basic. It's that the term revenge porn kind of evokes the wrong thing, right? Revenge implies that the victim of it is is somehow needing to be taken revenge upon, right? Um, so that it, it almost justifies the behavior of the perpetrator. It almost makes it seem like they're, they're, you know, these vigilante kind of heroes in a, in a way. Um, or at least that the woman did something bad that she deserves to have revenge done for. Um, and then the other part is porn. Porn is something that's a, adult, sh- that should be used in the case of adult consensual entertainment. It's not something that, uh, that we should conflate with, you know, imagery that has been non-consensual has has been taken and shared non-consensually and um and so i think it's just really important for people to to start to kind of separate those two cyber exploitation is a non-consensual um sharing of nude photos or images or or videos uh pornography is pornography doesn't even factor into it it's a sex crime and that's just not it's nothing else Exactly. That's a great, that's a great distinction. And we're recording this during, um, October is national domestic and intimate mm-hmm. partner violence awareness month. And I saw that you, you tweeted out some resources and all of that. You, in your story and in your book, you give voice to an aspect of partner violence that is so not as understood. And it, it's, it was interesting reading it because it's a trend I saw very early in my clinical career where I learned about the cycle of violence and, you know, there's this pattern and we're, we're taught to look out for these signs. But I was seeing what I was seeing showing up in my office, particularly with these young college women, was it was minus a lot of the physical violence. It was present. There was physical threatening, mm-hmm. but a lot of power over and threatening of reputation, threatening, yeah. uh, threatening of doing harm, threatening of, of, you know, spreading rumors and those types mm-hmm. of things that are it's mm-hmm. less understood, this emotional, psychological yeah. component. Yeah. Controlling, controlling behaviors, right? Controlling who you, who you can see, what you wear, what you, you know, what you, what you do. And, um, that I I felt like it was really important in one of the chapters in particular to go into that in some depth and talk about coercive control, because I think it is really not well understood. And it's something that needs Mm to, um, that people need to be made aware of, because if you don't know what to be looking out for, like it can happen to you without you even really 
being aware of it at all. It's insidious, right? And then we've got a culture that really shames the victim and blames right. the victim. So thank you. I, I just want to say thank you for that because it still goes under the radar so much. Um, and so many aren't getting the support they need because they don't understand that it is just as violent. And often I've seen it's trickier to heal from um, because of this, the psychological nature. And it really it just jams up the sense of trust and identity. It, yeah. you know, and you you hit some understandably um, and, and, and tough, dark moments. What what helped you make the decision not to quit on your life? Like literally quit. Yeah. Um, for me, it always, whenever I came back to that, whenever I came down to, to making that decision and it happened twice seriously that, that are episodes I talk about in the book, um, that I was, uh, I, I really basically decided I can't, I can't give, I can't give up on my family and on my, the people who, who are so invested in me, whatever they might be, my supporters, my, you know, like I said, my family, the people who believed in me to get me to that point, even if I had to, you know, leave the campaign or, or leave Congress, uh, I knew that, it would be so much worse if I, if I, you know, killed myself. And, um, and so I guess that's what it, that's what it came back to every time. And, you know, what's in, what's, I guess, a I don't know, a messed up blessing in, in a way is that once my brother died, which is a few months after my, you know, I don't know, near suicide after everything happened, um, it basically took it off the table for me. It took, it, it just, it no longer feels like something that I could even possibly consider with, uh, knowing what it would do to my family, um, at this point. So I just think that that's, you know, that, that is kind of what it comes down to is, you know, you're in a lot of ways it's, and you, you get wrapped up in this. This is what's so dangerous about suicidal thoughts is that you, you realize it's, or you feel like it, it could, all of your problems could go away. Like it could be so much easier if you weren't here, if you didn't have to deal with it anymore, if you didn't have to wake up the next day and be faced with the same thing. Um, but the problems don't go away for the people that you leave behind. So um, ultimately, I think that's the that's the decision factor, you know? Yeah, I, I am really sorry about about the loss that you, you and your family experienced this year with your brother. Um, I, I read that not too long ago. And it's like, it just, sometimes it's it's hard to catch your breath. And I, but I'm also struck how grief has this way of as excruciating as it is of really clarifying what matters. It, in it that does. Process, <laughs> it right. Does. Yeah. And, and it really just, it's like it, what matters, what doesn't, it's like a tunnel, mm-hmm. right. It, mm-hmm. that, that sucks in. So um, just, just yeah. curious about that. And, and I, but I want to circle back to this aspect of, especially the psychological, psychological and emotional aspect of domestic violence mm-hmm. and even stay, staying with someone as long as you did. And, you know, I mean, even hearing you say like wrestling with the beliefs that I would be better if I wasn't here. And after 15 years of being dehumanized by someone who's so close to you, it's hard not to start to really question that no matter how strong you are. What do you want people to know about kind of the myths around, you know, people misunderstand why you stay with somebody who is abusive? What do you want people to know who still have this belief that why'd you stay? You you could have just gone. Yeah. I mean, I wish that 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 phrase, it could just go away from people's minds because it's just (laughs) not, it's, it's just, that's, it's never that simple, right? There are a few things. First of all, many people who are victims of abuse in in domestic situations, but, but otherwise too, like, while it's happening, especially when it's, when it's, you know, including manipulation and the gaslighting and the, the psychological and emotional aspects of it, even more so than the physical abuse, the victim often doesn't know what's happening or they don't know that that kind of, that what's happening to them counts as abuse or that, you know, what their experiences are valid, especially when they have someone right next to them who's constantly saying, no, that your experience is not valid, that the way that you're saying things is wrong. And that in fact, you know, you're, you're the reason that all of this is happening. You're the, you know, it's your fault that I'm behaving this way, or it's your fault that like, I'm so upset. And, um, and so for years and years and years, people, largely women, uh, can be with somebody and can be in an abusive relationship and have no clue that that's what's really going on. And that was the case for me. And it wasn't until, you know, much later that I, that I started to realize that it was a problem, especially when, you know, we got into a relationship so young, right? Like that was, I, I I tell everybody, I'm like, whenever someone asks me, like, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'd be like, don't get married in your twenties. Like no matter what, no matter what kind of a relationship you're in, no matter how long you think you've been together, how what you think you know, like just just don't get married in your twenties. And 
um, you know, I don't know if that would have changed things for me, but I, I, uh, I feel that pretty strongly. That's one conclusion that I've definitively come to. <laughs> but um, but anyway, I think that, you know, we just, we don't necessarily see it. But but, but as far as other reasons for staying, people are, um, it is hard to imagine leaving everything, even if it's not, you know, kids, pets, a home, you know, a mortgage, a, a rent, like even just the, the idea of separating yourself from a life that you've developed with somebody uh, is is incredibly difficult. It's daunting. And it's something that, you know, you might start to think about, start to, um, to kind of create some, some plans around and get only a little far. And then you're like, I can't do this. I don't know how to, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, work and take care of X, Y, and Z, especially when you're talking about moms, you know, people who are, who have childcare to worry about, who don't know what kind of job they're going to be able to get if they leave, they don't know where they're going to be safe. And, and, and it's just, uh, it's such a complicated cycle and it's not something of like, Oh, why didn't you just leave? That just is never the right answer. Um, and it's not the, it's, it's never the victim's fault for being abused. It's the abuser's fault. So for choosing to abuse. So, you know, just get that out of your, out of your head. <laughs> you nailed it. And cause it really is that question really then blames again, the victim where no, nobody should ever be treated this way. That's never okay. And that's, that's just, that's the converse. That's the important. I remember an undergrad, I went to undergrad in Iowa and one of my projects for journalism, I had this journalism undergrad major was to do a brochure for a rural domestic violence clinic. And I was so, this is back in the early nineties and dating myself. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So old, Um, far from it, but I, (laughs) but I was struck by too seeing like, wow, there's an economic impact. And then often the sheriff who's supposed to protect her is friends with friends. the with with the perpetrator and then you'd lose your support system and not all yeah. the families on board and there's generations of women that have said this is just what we take and this is what we do and just the yeah. economic the family family and then many if they didn't have the education or the skill yeah. set you talk about family pets all yeah. of this stuff so it, it it is just something we've lost our compassion for and a capacity and man we just love to blame and make it simple we yeah we, we absolutely do and we love so, and we love to blame women. You know what I mean? Yeah, like we, do. we just we just do. And we're gonna probably see more of that. We're, we're recording that this. Yep. <laughs> we're recording this right before the vice presidential debate. We're gonna we're gonna see that tonight. I just I just feel like um I feel a bit uplifted just because I know <laughs> how much she's gonna crush Pence. So the real question is just how how sexist the attacks are going to be on her and you know what the response is going to be to that. Yeah, I think we're going to really see culturally a lot of the themes. I mean, if we could step back from it as as women leaders and really just notice, okay, these there's things are going to be identified around se- the intersectionality of race and and gender is going to yeah. be on, on display tonight. Um, circling back, just one more question about your relationship and this this abusive relationship you're in for so long. Does it does it still affect you today? And if so, how how so? What are the echoes? They're still all the time. Um, one of the ways that it shows up the most is actually in my dreams. And, um, I, so I, I'll often have, uh, have dreams with my ex-husband in it where he, like, I just can't get away from him. Like I can't, I can't get out of whatever the situation is or, and he, and in it, it'll often be like, uh, it'll, it'll be vaguely threatening, but not exactly frequently. Um, but at the same time, I'll also, often feel feel like bad for him there's a lot of like that i think there's i still have some some stuff that's around like i don't know my it's that guilt i guess that was kind of battered into you for so long um that i feel i feel responsible for him and like i you know i i don't quite know what to make of that but sometimes it's it's just so obvious like my dream i, I had a dream this is i don't know maybe a month ago now but i was just i was going along and I, um, I came, I came up to him and I said, I'm leaving. Like I was trying to get past him and he said, no, you're not. And so I stepped up to try and leave. And literally he lifted in my dream, he lifted a shotgun and like a blast from the shotgun went off. And I just like went black and like sat up and was like gasping and like, couldn't, couldn't fall back to sleep. And, um, so yeah, things like that. Um, but also, you know, it's stuff with your, your self-confidence and stuff with like these little, um, random things that'll just catch you off guard, um, as, you know, as, as triggers. And I don't know, it's, 
It's there all the time, though. You know, I don't, it's not a clinical term, officially clinical term. I hate clinical terms, to be honest with you, but there's this term, it gets used in like pop culture to pop psychology around trauma bonding. And mm-hmm. have you heard that in, in some yeah. of your own reading? And it's, you know, just having this weird bond, it feels weird and it's in, in not, not logical from the outside in, but that's a survival technique. It's mm-hmm. how you survived. And I, yeah. it, you know, you, you take a little kid who, was hurt by primary caregivers and the way they survive is to think, Oh, I must've done something to deserve it. Mm -hmm. Because if they leave, Mm -hmm. the little kid will think, Oh, we'll starve and freeze to death if I leave. So that's how they're mine. And so this, this, the shift in what, what our brains and our psyches and our souls do to help us get through that. And now it sounds like your, your, your nervous system is in a big kind of unlearning and integration mode and healing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's yeah. And I mean, it's, it really, it's, it hasn't even been a year since everything happened. We're getting close, but it hasn't even yeah. been a year. So Anniversaries are tough. Mm-hmm. Anniversaries are tough. They're important, um, but they're tough. What are some of the things that you're doing as this anniversary comes up to take yeah. care of you? Yeah, well, I'm so right now I finished every, I didn't take much time to just kind of stop and heal, right? Like I, I, I <laughs> my brother died. I wrote the book. I like went onto kind of a whirlwind time frame of, you know, getting the pack the political action committee started that I did, um, you know, selecting the candidates that we were endorsing, moving all of this stuff, just as we moved into the point where the book came out and I had to go on tour for it and do all these podcasts and everything. And so I, I just never really stopped and took the space and time that, you know, I needed. And, and for me, at least part of that, that just keeping going is like its own coping mechanism. And I know I needed that too, but right now I'm like, I need to just, take it easy. I'm, I'm doing this road trip. I'm seeing family and friends. I'm, you know, um, I'm just like spending a ton of time in nature, rock climbing and riding horses. I'm, you know, um, I don't know, catching up with people and catching up with life that like, I've just been missing out on for so long. Um, either because of the campaign and, and running and, um, being in Congress or even before that, when my, you know, my husband was very like, I, I wasn't able to do a lot of things. So um, it's been now, we scattered my brother's ashes in the beginning of September. And mm. since then, I've basically more or less been on the road seeing different people. And I, I, I made one trip around, came back to California for my sister's 30th birthday, and am now making my second round uh, and headed back to DC, but slowly. So Yeah, I mean, and this is a lifelong journey of recovery. It's not a, you know this, I'm more saying even for the listeners, this is, a, this is always going to be a part of your story. Um, it's not gonna, and you're doing the work now, so it doesn't be a part of, it's not a part of your present or your future. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's powerful. It's powerful to take the time and, and also reclaim your life. I know, I know for me, one of the ways that I often would run from my trauma and try and numb and protect from it is work. Work mm-hmm. was so, especially meaningful work. I mean, yeah. I shared with you, I was in DC right out of college yeah, and work, working on campaigns in college and meaningful work is a powerful protector to hide and distance from the pain and yeah sometimes that's healthy to a certain extent but you can't do it forever (laughs) it's not sustained it's not sustainable and so so i am really glad you're taking this time i'm really happy for you speaking of of the traumas and the after effects one of the biggest casualties of trauma that i've seen in not only the work i do but in my own life is setting up a sense health of sense a sense of healthy boundaries and trust Mm-hmm. How do your how do your boundaries look different today than before your life was turned upside down? Oh, God, um, <laughs> I think I think because my 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 one relationship with my husband was you know it started when I was sixteen and it was you know it was it was it was not healthy from the beginning right and I think it forged into something that was very codependent and also like you know it was toxic it was it was codependent it was one that um, was to uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, too ex- exclusive in terms of it being the only, really the only person that I was able to um, to use as a support, if that makes sense. And he mm-hmm. he certainly kept it that way on purpose. But when, but now I've really I've really ha- expanded that intentionally, but also, and I think it's really positive to where the if I'm going through a hard spot, right? If I'm just having a kind of an emotional crisis of whatever kind. I could talk to my mom. I could talk to my sister. I could talk to any number of my friends. I could talk to, you know, the guy I'm seeing. I can, but, but I'm not, 
exclusively dependent on any one person to be able to kind of like find the comfort that I need and the um, the ability to sort of say, okay, I have support. I'm grounding myself. I'm able to kind of, you know, find my way back into whatever headspace I need to be in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that that's kind of the biggest thing is like, you know, you want to be able for, for me, at least it's like, I, I don't want to not trust people. You know what I mean? Like that's, and that's hard to, to do, but it's also something that like, I don't want to live my life that way, you know? So trying to figure out how you do that without um, being too, too trusting <laughs> is kind of part of what I'm trying to figure out. It sounds like just that tension of not wanting to live in fear, but yeah. still wanting to be abundantly cautious and not wanting to repeat history mm-hmm. in the parts of history that totally. didn't serve you. You know, totally. Brene Brown, Brene Brown, and um, I talk about her a lot of work a lot with, um, she's amazing. I'm part of her training company in the daring way and it's game changer work. And she talks about boundaries being what's okay. And what's not okay. So simple. So annoyingly simple. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what was okay and not okay back then and what's even a year ago and, and what's not okay and okay today, what stands out to you in that? Do you mean in terms of like any of my relationships or what do you mean? Maybe I'm thinking even in your work. Mm-hmm, particularly mm-hmm. whether it's in the campaign or whether you're a congressional team or even in your personal life, yeah, yeah, yeah. what was, what was okay and not okay then? And how, how does that look different back then yeah. to today? Well, this was a, this was an escape for me when I was trying, when I, when I was trying to get away from my relationship with him where I wanted to be scheduled constantly, right? Like I didn't mm. want to, to have to have time like, uh, unfilled where I'd have to go and see him. Right. Um, and so I would, I would eat, be looking for ways to ensure that I was constantly, you know, busy. Sometimes I would, so I, I, in terms of protecting my time, that wasn't something that I was very good at, especially when I was, you know, I, I clearly had my own reasons for not wanting to. Um, but I also know that like in terms of my own mental health and in terms of my ability to like stay healthy and, um, compartmentalize and, and just be like a, a human, then I, I can't do that. I can't do that breakneck pace of working without any reasonable, you know, shut off time um, indefinitely that, you know, no one can really. And I was very aware of that when I was supervising, you know, uh, when I worked at PATH, I was over hundreds of people. And um, when I was supervising them, the biggest thing that I had to tell people about all the time was about burnout and how to prevent it, how to make sure that you were not doing that, not making those mistakes. And, um, and so I'm always, you know, my, my, my boundaries, I guess, previously on that front were virtually non-existent. Now I'm like, <laughs> I, tell, I tell people who are scheduling things for me, I'm like, okay, we do a negotiation of like, I'm going to work two days this week where I'm going to do, <laughs> where I'm going to do phone calls or interviews or, you know, TV hits or whatever. Um, but the rest, like I'm, I'm really trying to, to check out and kind of give myself the space. And uh, I think that that's, you know, an important, it's an important place for me to be in right now. Well, if there's anything my clients have taught me is that if you don't take that space, your body will shut you down. And sure. so I'm really glad that you're doing that. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for unpacking that. Cause I think it's one of, again, those casualties of, of trauma is, is losing a sense of where you end and someone else begins and trying mm-hmm. to reclaim that sometimes just takes a lot of time and everyone yeah. has an opi- opinion. And mm-hmm. when you care as deeply as you do about issues and making an impact and you love what you do, it, it can sometimes it can sometimes we can, as they phrase, we get in our own way, which is kind right. of cheesy, but, but it's, it's hard to be accountable to ourselves mm-hmm. that too. Mm-hmm. So what, yeah. what are there any, what, what, uh, how are you accountable to yourself and honoring that workflow? I, um, so I would say that I haven't necessarily set up the best self accountability as much as I've set up accountabilities with people who care about me, um, including, you know, my mom, my sister, my therapist. <laughs> um, so it's like, it's like, I know that I have to have these check-ins and that I have to have people who, you know, I can, I can, who I can, I can, I know are going to kind of call me on stuff that they see is, is problematic or not good for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because of that, it creates sort of your own, your own self-regulation <laughs> as well. But these, you know, these are people who like, that's sort of been the pact since all this happened is that my mom and my sister are nice. like, you know, kind of like, I, you know, I've, I've been, I've, I've dated a bit and I'm, I've been seeing somebody and like their man, my sister and my mom are on it in terms of making sure that I'm <laughs> not, not falling into old patterns. E- even, even ones where I wouldn't have thought that it was 
a problem, right? Like where, where I didn't even realize a, that it was a pattern or B that it was something that I should have been doing differently all along, but now they're fast to call me out on something. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Cause ha- sometimes when we're trying to build our own self-trust, we need other folks that can help give us that we trust to give us perspective as we're in that totally. reconstruction phase that it sounds like you're in right now. Yeah. Um, reconstruction is a good way to put it. Yeah. It, it might take a lot. It's like a light until we breathe our last breath sometimes. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I want to shift gears talking a little bit about your, your career. Cause I, 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 I loved reading about how you got into politics and you, you shared in several places that becoming a member of Congress wasn't this lifelong dream. And I'd love for you to share what was the catalyst that fueled your decision to run for Congress? Yeah, um, I was, it wasn't my lifelong dream. I'd, I'd been working in the nonprofit sector as the executive director of PATH, People Assisting the Homeless, which was the largest homeless services organization in California. And I um, I thought that that was going to be my career, traje- continue to be my career trajectory for as long as, you know, I wanted it to be. And I felt super fulfilled by it every single day. So but then 2016 happened. Um, we'd passed this major legislation uh, it, at the city level in the city of Los Angeles to to invest in permanent housing, um, invest in programs and resources to address homelessness. We had, uh, you know, it was it was this huge success. It was something that we'd been working on getting on the ballot for ages. Well, we we won that ballot initiative by a large margin of victory. But at the same time, Trump was elected, and we had a Republican House and Senate, and we knew that uh, everything that we'd worked for, no matter what we were doing at the local level, could be in jeopardy at a moment's notice with Trump and the Republicans who were going to let him do whatever he wanted. So I um, I just, I was just like, I have to do something. And I found out that my district, where I'd spent my whole life, was key in flipping the house. Um, just north of Los Angeles, it was a district that had been held by a Republican for decades, but that Hillary Clinton had actually won in the last election, um, but the Republican incumbent had still held. And, um, and so I decided I want to get involved there. I was like, this is great. I can have an impact in my very own community, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't occur to me that I would run, um, until somebody finally said, you know, Katie, you're complaining a lot about these candidates. You're saying that, that you don't think these people can win. It was really just one person, um, that was, that I didn't think could beat the incumbent in the election, the general election. And, um, he, and they're like, well, why don't you run? And I said, you know what? All the norms are shattered. So um, I guess I'll try. And then I did. <laughs> and it's just been, wow, I can't even believe thinking about that now. It's like my, the thing that spurred me was in, you know, almost a year ago or almost four years ago now. And um, it's weird to think about how my entire lifetime of politics <laughs> was shorter than the Trump administration, the the <laughs> genesis and exit. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if that's, if that's the case. <laughs> For what, now. what is for now, yeah. What is your why driving your work right now? Uh, it's it, it's really that I don't I don't want to. I think I still have more to offer, and I don't want to be done making a difference. And um, exactly what that looks like for me is is I'm still fight I'm still finding that out. I don't know. I don't know where I can have the biggest impact. I don't know you know where my voice is needed, or if it will continue to be needed for the the long haul. So that's I guess I feel like I'm kind of trying to accept and be willing to just like ride it out and to see where it takes me and, um, and what, you know, what I think I can, um, have, you know, have the biggest impact on. Um, but I'm not in a hurry right now, which is probably the first time in my life I haven't been in a hurry. Oh, to not be in a hurry and to have a big impact. I think that's where that's a sweet spot I right so, there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, so your why is to make a big impact on and issues and, and things that matter to you, mm-hmm. but you're still working on the tactics and the strategy behind yeah, that. Yeah. And-, and I've got, you know, I've got kind of different feelers out, right? Like they've got the, the movie that I'm going to be producing that I think can, you know, really be helpful in terms of, of um, bringing bigger attention to these issues of domestic abuse and to the nuance of, of all of it. And, um, and, you know, I, I'm hopeful that the story can be handled in, in a way that, that causes a lot of discussion. And um, I don't know, movies meaningful. Um, I've got a podcast that I think can be pretty cool. That's about to start. Um, I've got the pack that's supporting candidates. I've got, um, you know, the book still. And, and I think with all that, like I've, I know I've, I've still got, you know, I've got other ideas that are sort of percolating. <laughs> and I think by January ish, I'll know kind of which ones are sticking and, and, you know, if I want to focus more on one or the other and 
just have to keep reassessing. And fortunately, I guess with everything in my life that has happened, I'm like comfortable in sitting in the unknown, which is. Whoa. <laughs> right. Which is like yeah. not, I don't think the case for a lot of people. Well, I don't, I, I here's what I make up is I, I suspect it's not comfortable, but you're intentionally, you have probably a high capacity for discomfort. That's probably um, true. Given your yeah. story and that you are intentionally owning the unknown and the edges of it. Those are my yeah. words. Yeah. Um, and because you're someone that's always thinking, I'm hearing this, I'm seeing this, like, okay, you've got decision trees and I'm also, <laughs> you see this, this passion and this drive to make an impact is also a lifeline. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it, this, it's really connected to meaning and purpose, which we, we all need. Um, so we're not living, living the zombie life. Um, I totally so, agree. Yeah. But yeah, so, you're probably right that it's not like, it's not comfortable necessarily because of course it'd be more comfortable to know what's, <laughs> what's coming next. But, but I also don't, for where I'm at right now, I'd rather not know and wait and make sure it's the right thing than know and you know, I mean, I mean, I don't even know what, what do you really know anyway? <laughs> you know, like even, even if you feel like, you know, even if you feel like you've gotten this certainty about anything, do you? And I don't, I don't know that anyone really does. Well, so. 2020 has, especially those of us with privilege and a lot of, you know, comfort in compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. We've been stretched immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, but embracing that, you know, the aspect of vulnerability of uncertainty is where all the good stuff happens. And, right. but I'm sensing you have a lot more certainty in who you are. And mm-hmm. probably, I, again, I make up that you're exhaling and getting a feel of what it's like to really be free mm-hmm. and yeah. figure out who you are. Totally. And I'm so excited to see the fruits of that. And Thank I'll you. definitely watching and cheering <laughs> you on. <laughs> and, and, and we can just ignore the naysayers uh, because I'm hoping, you know, have compassion for their hurt and um, moving on. So you touched briefly on your pack, which I I loved learning about when you launched your book and it's called Her Time, H-E-R Time. Mm -hmm. Um, How how is this kind of supporting your updated kind of evolving why right now? How is that particular aspect? Yeah, that was actually the first thing that I decided I wanted to do after everything was that I, and it was a decision I had to make quickly because um, you have your re-election campaign funds that you have to decide what you're going to do with when you leave. Right. And you can either leave them um, and you can kind of give it away a little bit or you can save it. And if you want to run for office again with it, and this was this was the real decision was people were like, are you going to take a couple of years off and then run again? Are you going to run for Senate? And I was just like, I don't even want to touch that. And also whatever people, whatever money people gave me wasn't for some th- theoretical like run in the future. Um so I decided instead that I wanted to convert that money into a political action committee and um, dedicate that committee to helping elect women, particularly young women and women of color, um, helping them gain positions of power. And, you know, it started off with Congress, but it has expanded to be all all different uh, elected positions up and down the ballot. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think, you know, we've got some amazing candidates for this fall and, um, you know, next time is going to be even bigger. Yes. And, and having worked in politics, also knowing that money is just a part of the gig and it's not going anywhere. And yeah. So- and what I learned while I was running was that that initial amount of money can be such a barrier for people, especially women um, who aren't necessarily wealthy or well-established. And so, you know, my pack can help kind of get people off the ground in a lot of ways. And um, I'm, I'm proud of some of the endorsements we made that then were followed by Emily's List and the DCCC and some of the bigger investors that, you know, have even more money they can spend on it. Absolutely. So to be a part of that initial wave of, yeah. you know, to help. Yeah, that's, money, that's yeah. exciting. <laughs> it is. It's a different kind of Silicon Valley perspective, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How is this work with her um, supporting your own healing right now? It makes me feel good because it makes me feel like people, you know, I left, but there are people, there are women who are far more talented even than I am or was, um, who are, who I'm helping to get elected. Right. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's like a passing the torch kind of thing. And, you know, I'm just like, fine to be on the, <laughs> on the, uh, the, the, not, I wouldn't even say I'm on the sidelines. I would say I'm maybe no. part of the, pit, the pit crew now, you know? So um happy to be in a different capacity than, but, but man, these women have so much to offer. They're brilliant. Um, they're the exact kind of leaders that we need. And, you know, I, I think it, it gives me hope and comfort to be, to, to not feel like I'm leaving a job 
left undone, but instead that I'm sending even more capable people to go and do it, you know? There's a lot of consistency in your actions, even amidst rising from so much pain and um, and so much trauma. And, you know, I, I'm personally, I've always been a part of the pit crew. I'm a big fan of the pit crew. I think <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, the upfront stuff is, I, I, I just remember, I remember that, but I'm a big believer in the pit crew. So yeah, I'm a little good. biased. Yeah, no, I mean, I was always a big believer in the pit crew, but, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, no, but, I'm, you know. and, and, but I think what, yeah, it's not, it's not an either or, but I think it's a good example. There's many ways to lead. And I think yeah. a lot of people kind of shut down. I think leaders is just the upfront, mm-hmm. but we can lead with our time, with our resources, yeah, with our energy, and we can shift and there's seasons of yep. being upfront and out there there's seasons of writing the checks or mm-hmm. making the, making the phone calls, whatever yeah. that may be. So yeah, absolutely. I'm all into that. Well, okay. Congratulations again on the movie deal. Thank Cause you. it's just announced, you announced this yesterday. Yep. Thank you. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you? Sure. I mentioned a couple things. Yep. So I'm personally most active on Twitter. Um, my personal handle is Katie Hill 4 CA. I was like, wait, you just totally <laughs> left me for a second. Um, it's Katie Hill, the number four CA. And then, uh, and then, you know, I always link to different things on there, but the a couple websites to, to remember the first is nakedpoliticspodcast.com because you can sign up there for an alert for when the podcast launches, which is, uh, as soon as we're up on Apple, uh, we're waiting for a couple of other go-aheads and then we're going to go. Um, then what's the, so the book is she will rise book.com. And on it, there's a, bu- a bunch of different resources on that website too, that are included within the book, but also available separately so that you can, you know, including information on domestic violence and on, you know, all kinds of intimate partner abuse and, and things like that. Just helpful resources. Um, what's the last thing? Her dash time.com is the pack. Um, what am I missing? Does that sound like everything? It sounds like everything we've covered. And I love to the name of your podcast because oh, you're just, yeah. re- you're, it's like, yeah, it's that's... like you're taking it back. You're just taking it back. <laughs> that's really what I'm trying. That's really what I'm trying to do. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the alternative is. It's just to, to be ashamed of it forever. And I'm just, I can't, I don't see how that's helpful. So no, it, nothing helpful about shame. So thank you for continuing to choose you and choose life and to choose to make an impact, not just on thank the world you. around you, but continue to, to take care of you. And then knowing that sharing your story is literally, literally saving lives. Thank you. I, I want to make sure that. you never forget that, but your life also, I'm glad you're tending to it now. Thank you. This was an honor. Thank you so much, Katie Hill. I yeah, this so was excited. great. I'm so glad you reached out. So thank you. Yeah. I'm excited to continue to follow you and uh, Same. I really do wish you all the best. If you're not making mistakes, you're not stepping up and making decisions. When leaders like you take ownership of their choices and stories, they model courage and set a path to heal the echoes of trauma. Instead of spinning and avoiding deflection, they choose to own it all, address it head on, make their own changes, and spread accountability. This is no easy task. Putting yourself out there while healing from the echoes of trauma is hard especially in our culture where bullying and dehumanization have become normalized. We heard from former Congresswoman Hill on how she's living in these tensions as she owns her story, all of her decisions, her recovery admits the critics continuing to pile on. We are so polarized and have less and less tolerance for those we disagree with, those who disappoint us, and those who do something we don't understand. Making the decision to judge and critique actually colludes with the status quo of power and power over and feels the default protective patterns that squash the power to own our decisions and learn from it all. And we miss the opportunity to look within ourselves and do the necessary work to sit with the discomfort of what is behind our reflexive blame, judgment, cynicism, and fear. So What are the echoes of trauma impacting your leadership? What is behind your reflexive responses to judgments and blaming? How can you bring more compassion and curiosity into your leadership after hearing Katie's story? And what are some patterns of protecting that are showing up in your decision-making process? Now, I want to make something really clear. We need to stop piling on survivors and instead we need to support them, period. 
Former Congresswoman Katie Hill so powerfully noted, it is not the responsibility of the victim to leave. It is the responsibility of the abuser to not abuse. And I will add doing the work to move away from the just world mindset of people get what they deserve towards a posture of compassion, curiosity, and accountability is where we have so much room to grow right now and a much better place to make our decisions from. By taking the easy route of judgment and critiquing ourselves and others colludes with the status quo of power and power over and healing the echoes of trauma may take you down for a while, but making the decision to do the inner healing work will make sure the critics and the pain will not take you out. Taking ownership of your choices is important to you. I get it. You believe in accountability, collecting data on the falls and struggles you've had, and making the necessary changes with that data. In fact, making mistakes is a part of stepping up and making decisions. As a leader, you carry the weight of your decisions every day. You take seriously the responsibility you have to your clients, your work, your colleagues, and your loved ones. And you also notice the nagging fears and doubts that can still impact the choices you make. Finding a leadership coach who gets the nuances of your business and can also help you identify the echoes of trauma that are infused in those protective patterns of your choices is crucial. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to help guide the choices and the decisions that you're making. When the stakes are high and you do not want to lose focus, when you want to navigate the inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity and not default to judgment and cynicism, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, own your decisions, and do things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode, this really important episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 